Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum, recording in beautiful Brighton Beach, New York. And I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director, recording from beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. And this is an emergency podcast of sorts. Today, Israel announced that it would bar entry for two Democratic Congresswomen, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Let's just make, I'd like to make this point that any emergency that cuts short your Brighton Beach vacation is obviously a serious cause for a podcast. This is definitely a serious issue that is going to have repercussions for a long time that we're going to feel. So yes, it, it was definitely worth taking me off the boardwalk and back into the podcast studio. So we have these two Democratic congresswomen who have been in the news since being elected, to say the least. They've certainly made names for themselves, including as relates to their views on Israel and controversies surrounding potentially anti-Semitic statements that they've made. And they have definitely not shied away from commenting on Israel, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Rashida Tlaib herself is Palestinian-American. She has family in the West Bank. So this is clearly an issue that means a lot to her. And Ilhan Omar, of course, drew controversy with her statements about APAC money and about uh, dual loyalties that a lot of people found offensive. So these are two politicians who are no strangers to Israeli-Palestinian controversies, but this is certainly going to be the biggest one yet, I think. So yeah, these are two um, new Muslim congresswomen. Um, Obviously, Rashida Tlaib is from Michigan, representing the 5th District in Michigan that covers part of Detroit, and Ilhan Omar, Minnesota. And this has kind of been, I think, a... It's been almost two years, but a process that has this really, I think, is the height of what's happened because, I mean, we had a there was obviously going to be this kind of clash. I think it was a matter of time. I think it's a very important point, especially in what we've been talking about, the kind of erosion of bipartisan support for Israel. And we can see that not because obviously Omar and Tlaib are on one end of the Democratic Party, and they're in the, I mean, they're in a very small minority, but um, this decision by Israel has received condemnation from pretty much every major American Jewish organization on both the left, center, and even the right to a certain degree, including APAC and AJC and others. Even in Israel, it's received condemnation from centrist politicians like Geir Lapid, I mean, you look at just sticking for a moment in the American political context, you talked about how this is demonstrating a split over Israel, again, not from Tlaib and Omar, because we know what they think about Israel, but from the more centrist or or mainstream parts of the party. Take, for example, Steny Hoyer, Congressman Steny Hoyer from Maryland, the House Majority Leader. He was criticized from the left this year because at the APAC conference, in his speech, people construed or presented his comments as throwing his Democratic colleagues, Tlaib and Omar, under the bus, the way he presented where their views fit within the party. He came out against banning them from entering Israel because this puts anyone in the Democratic Party in a really awkward position. Are they going to stand with Prime Minister Netanyahu as the leader of a foreign country at the end of the day, a major 
critical American ally, but still a foreign country? Or are they going to stand with members of their own party? And it throws things into really black and white. And it makes it more difficult for someone to criticize the more left wing elements of the party when there might be legitimate criticisms coming along because it's sort of a are you with us or are you against us sort of situation because that's the choice that Israel has now put to the Democratic Party. Yeah, and we had House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying that this move was beneath Israel's dignity and she's definitely regarded as a big Israel supporter. So this just shows how this is really cementing this bipartisan divide on there, Israel. There's, there's going to be an element of disrespect or, or perceived disrespect from the high ups in the Democratic Party who see themselves as holding back the tide of anti-Israelism or anti, anti-Zionism or however you want to present it in the left fringe of the party, like Steny Hoyer, like House Speaker Pelosi and Ron Dermer, the Israeli ambassador to the United States, and Netanyahu had previously committed to Pelosi and to Steny Hoyer that they would let Tlaib and Omar into the country, basically to avoid a situation like what we're dealing with now. And they're essentially going back on that promise. So from the perspective of people who are in the more out-and-out pro-Israel segment of the party, who are holding the line on that issue they would see it as having the carpet pulled out from under them. It's a really bad situation. This is where I think it's going to to really reverberate. That's right. And in case any of our listeners forgot, I think it's unlikely that any of you did, but we are 30 days, uh, just over 30 days away from Israeli elections. Now, I think the question needs to be asked of whether or not this would happen if we weren't in a Israeli election campaign. We know that Benjamin Netanyahu loves using the United States as kind of an election issue. He did so in 2015 with obviously the speech to Congress against the nuclear agreement with Iran. It happened even in April elections with recognition of the Golan Heights from the Trump administration. Do you think that this is uh, connected to elections in Israel? I definitely think that there's a tie-in. I don't think in the current context, with just a few weeks until Israelis head to the polls, you can say that it's totally divorced from the election issue. The question I would actually put back to you, Eli, spending most of your time when you're not in Israel, is how many Israelis know who Tlaib and Omar is? Because the impression that I've always gotten is that this is not the main issue in Israel, and that this is more about recruiting a handful of hard right votes, making Netanyahu look big. He's standing up to these big anti-Semites, again, that said sarcastically, but he he basically creating an aura around Omar and Tlaib and making them to be a bigger specter than they are. And then he confronts and challenges them, and Netanyahu looks big and strong, and It's sort of this manufactured confrontation. And he also gets the benefit of having Trump in on this. We saw Trump have his tweet that people are saying, was this the impetus for Netanyahu to make this decision? Trump tweeting out that Tlaib and Omar should not be allowed into Israel. Whatever the case, that gives Netanyahu an added election advantage because a big part of his campaign is advertising his really artful management of Israel's diplomatic affairs. We saw 
the controversy a couple of weeks ago over the banners that were hung from Likud headquarters in Tel Aviv showing Netanyahu with Trump, Netanyahu with Putin, Netanyahu with Modi. So to me, this is another part of it. This is Netanyahu as the steward of Israel's foreign policy. This is Netanyahu as Israel's great protector. And here he's protecting Israel from Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. It sounds ridiculous, but that to me would be the election connection. I don't think it's something that's going to appeal to the vast majority of Israelis, but I'm curious your take seeing these issues play out on the ground. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, Omar and Tlaib are not household names in Israel by any means. I think people that follow the news and people that that follow closely the relationship between Israel and the United States in Israel know who they are, and they obviously know about AOC and this kind of new progressive, more progressive, like leftist aspect of the Democratic Party that is taking a lot of controversial stands on Israel and saying a lot of things that are obviously controversial, including kind of leaving, uh, at least in Tlaib's case, the two-state paradigm and forcing support for BDS and whatnot. Right, and, and Omar has not been clear on that. I would also jump in just to say... I don't know how you feel about this. This could put the left and the center in Israel in an awkward position. You mentioned how Yair Lapid of Kachol Lavan said that this was a bad decision. Every left-wing or centrist politician or even other right-wing politicians who are going to come out against this in Israel are going to be tarred as aiding and abetting anti-Semites by Netanyahu. Because even if these people, like you said, aren't household names, he can still flip it around and say, Ilhan Omar said X, Y, and Z. Yair Lapid is saying this is someone who we should let into our country. Exactly. You know, that's that's right. And to an extent, I agree with you. But what I think makes this a bit harder for Netanyahu is that you have all these mainstream U.S. Jewish pro-Israel organizations that are falling in line with these centrist Israeli politicians. Like if Netanyahu is on, he's going against APAC here. He's going against AJC. He's going against a real consensus. Are these American Jewish organizations really household names? I mean, APAC, APAC without a doubt, is. But again, but who, let, but who, let, but let but, me ask you this. Would Israelis be happier to see Netanyahu in agreement with APAC, an organization, or in agreement with Donald Trump, the president of the United States of America? So I think, I think it, it, it depends what Israelis, but that's the important point because the Israelis Netanyahu is targeting here are not even center-right Israelis. He's targeting right-wing Israelis, Israelis that are deciding whether they're going to vote for Ayala Chaked or they're going to vote for the Likud. He's not really going after the center, the center-left. I think what he's trying to do here is really garner up his base. It's known as the his signature Gavald campaign, and I think he's well on the way of doing it. There definitely has to be an election angle here, Eli. I think that you've also laid out some compelling points as to why this is going to come up when Israelis go to vote. And again, like you mentioned, the proximity to the election, it's just too close for there to be any kind of coincidence. And the way Netanyahu has played off of Trump as a foil before, it's going to come up in some way. But I want to take a step back and get the kind of Washington angle We're very pleased to welcome Aaron Weinberg, our government relations manager, for his podcast debut. He is based in Washington, D.C. And maybe, Aaron, you can give us a little bit 
of insight into how this is going to play out on the Hill and also how this is going to play out in the 2020 presidential election, because we haven't seen a question about Israel so far in the Democratic debates. But this has really thrown things into the forefront for the Democratic Party. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. You know, longtime listener, first time guest. First of many appearances, we hope. So I think that what you say is is very much in par with a lot of what is going on here in D.C. What I can tell you just a little bit about the atmosphere here in D.C. is that it's, you know, today's August 15th, smack in the middle of the August recess for both houses of Congress. So all members of Congress, representatives and senators are, are not in Washington. They're either in their district or traveling abroad or, or doing business outside of, of Washington. And things always have a little bit of a different flavor and feel and dynamic when members are here and can talk together on the floor of, of their chambers during votes or when they can get together in person versus when things happen during recess. This, obviously, as we know, comes at the end of a, a long period of tension on Capitol Hill around these issues. And you can have me back to to talk more about that. But what I think is so poignant about this particular, the feeling in Washington is is how quickly people from really across the spectrum within the Democratic Party came out and denounced this move incredibly quickly in the Jewish community. And also within the Democratic Party, you have, you know, within hours of this being on the news, you have the leadership of the Democratic Party, both Leader Hoyer and Speaker Pelosi coming out so quickly and denouncing it. And the thing that I will add sort of from the IPF perspective is, you know, we issued uh, what I think is a, a very well-worded statement. And I, in part of my capacity and my job as government relations manager, is ensuring that all the offices on the Hill have all the resources they need to be nuanced on this issue and are also having a look into what IPF is, is saying in and so I just literally moments ago, I think the reason why uh, I was a little delayed in joining you today is that I uh, sent a blast to uh, 500 some members of staffers on Capitol Hill with our statement. And usually when I send blasts like this, I'll get two or three responses or some trickling in hours later or days later even. And the response has just been incredible. People, you know, writing back saying that this is exactly right. And that what we are saying is right on the money and how concerned and upset they are with this decision. And um, generally with the increased political polarization and the use of Israel as a partisan cudgel on Capitol Hill generally. And I think that's a lot of where the kind of things that we're talking about um, and that you regularly address on this podcast can help and ease to ease these tensions, but also to work towards a more productive future, which this is a decidedly step backwards from. Take a step back and actually, you know, answer the question you asked, because, you know, that's always a good thing to do when you're asked questions. I come from politics. My first instinct is never to directly answer a question. I, I have to say I'm deeply concerned by the not just the precedent it sets, but the tone and, and implication of what this is going forward. While we haven't had a question about Israel yet in the debates and we haven't really touched that deeply on foreign policy, you know, we had one show of hands about an Iran deal and we had one you know, a couple of questions at the very end of one of the last rounds of debates. There is no doubt in my mind that this issue will come to the fore, even if not in debates within the presidential campaign. And while it may not make, uh, it could make an appearance on a primary debate stage, I believe it most definitely will make an appearance on a general election debate stage and possibly even this specific move of President Trump touting his ability to 
crack down on the terrorists within the Democratic Party or the people seeking to undermine Israel. And there's a whole sort of electoral argument about sort of why he believes that to be effective. So Aaron, maybe if I can ask you as how this relates to um, the uh, Democratic primary, we've seen, we obviously saw, I think the first two to condemn this decision uh, were Senator Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders. But we also have like what most people consider to be a more conservative candidate, Kamala Harris, coming out against this decision. This is something that I think we'll see a, a big consensus in the Democratic Party, whereas I'm not sure if that's something that would have been as like clear cut in previous elections in the Hillary Obama primary and that what should we make of this and how can we just follow this as it relates to the the primary yeah so just to to jump in regardless of whether Kamala Harris is considered conservative or progressive or any other labels which I think is is not particularly clear you know someone who very much is sort of on the more centrist democratic side and Chuck Schumer has also also came out very quickly and condemned it so I think your your point is well taken that this is you know, and Steny Hoyer, who is sort of more of the traditional centrist Democrats versus Nancy Pelosi, who's, you know, seen as more progressive. I, I think that you are totally right that this is across the board being dealt with by across the board by the Democratic Party. In terms of the primary, I mean, you know, I think we have to see. We know that Israel is not the first issue even that uh, American Jews vote on. And so, uh, it is most definitely not within the consciousness of the general democratic electorate. Now, there's a lot of dynamics in how that plays out, but this is now transformed. You know, why? One of the reasons why I believe this is so dangerous is because this has this move has taken us away from talking about actual policy when it comes to Israel, or even for people who are incredibly critical of the positions that both Congresswoman Tlaib and Omar support. It makes the conversation no longer about those policies and the policy implications. It makes it about the politics and Trump and Netanyahu and Democrats and are they anti-Israel? It's no longer about like, oh, what's the most you know effective way of, of getting to a two-state solution or what's more effective, one state, two state. It takes it away from the policy conversation and takes it into this conversation that, frankly, President Trump is much more comfortable in terms of, you know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and, you know, we're the only ones who can make you safe. This is the other point that I will make, if it's okay, just, just one, one point that I think is so interesting about this is, for many, for, for in the last, we certainly saw this in the last election cycle in Israel, but for, you know, people around, leaders around the world have been trying to mirror, you know, the Trump effect, have started to tweet, have started to speak like Donald Trump, so what's really interesting is this in one way is President Trump, I think, taking a page out of Prime Minister Netanyahu's book of trying to say them are clear, you know, these people are clear, are a clear danger in these congresswomen that even Israel wouldn't let them in. And the only way to keep to beat them and to keep keep America safe is to reelect Donald Trump, um, which is a very classic kind of othering that Prime Minister Netanyahu has done for, for decades. I just want to throw something out there related to this beautiful exchange of ideas between Netanyahu and Donald Trump. Is this a conversation about silencing critics and silencing political opponents? And is that why this is objectionable? 
or is it the respect element that disrespecting the institution of the United States Congress and Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Hoyer, who had commitments made to them by the Israeli government that they would not see their Democratic colleagues, Omar and Tlaib, banned from the state of Israel? Because, again, I, I don't I don't support this blocking their entry, of course, and Israel policy forum throwing in organizationally doesn't. I just want to play devil's advocate for a moment. I mean, people have been barred from entering Israel before. Kurt Waldeheim, the United Nations Secretary General and Chancellor of Austria, was banned from entering the United States in the late 80s or early 90s because of his service in the German military for the Nazis as an SS man in World War II. So if you had a Nazi or neo-Nazi, God forbid, but if we had uh, Senator Richard Spencer of Montana trying to enter Israel and they barred him, would we be having the same conversation? And I'm not trying to make a comparison between Richard Spencer and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, but I'm trying to, I, w- I want to get to the bottom of what, what is really the issue here? So I think it's about all of those. Obviously, silencing critics is a traditional anti-democratic motif that we've seen throughout the world and throughout history. But I think there's a few points that are also compelling and important. One, if Israel believes that its fundamental cause is just, as I do, as Israel Policy Forum believes, then it should be able to stand up to criticism. And um, it should be able to stand up and, and weather whatever storm Rashida, Ilhan, Rashida Tlaib bin Ilhan Omar bring, whether they meet with government, Israeli government officials or not, whether they go into Israel proper or only stay in the West Bank, whatever it is that they bring, if we fundamentally believe that our argument is correct, simply not allowing them to enter and also trying to silence dissent is not a way to engender not only democratic norms, but a flourishing society or sort of a um, exemplary society. It's not only a way not to only uh, have a democratic society, but also to have an exemplary society and sort of the vision of Israel's founders, you know, realized into modern day Israel. More than that, there is an element of respect for the institution of Congress as an official arm of the U.S. government, uh, the closest ally of Israel. And, you know, there are protocols that goes with such relationships. But more than that, the, U- the United States Congress is responsible for appropriating and authorizing aid to Israel. And while there are definitely voices out there right now that are calling that into question, it's not unthinkable to think that either of these two members or other members allied to them could sit on the appropriating or authorizing committees. In fact, Ilhan Omar does sit on the authorizing committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, that has an impact on the aid to the state of Israel. So in fact, it is literally counterproductive to the state of Israel to turn away somebody who is in charge of ensuring and partly charged with ensuring the safety and security of the state of Israel. And more than that, on top of that, it also gives incredible fodder to the BDS movement, something that can inspire folks to even more want to boycott Israel is Israel boycotting the people who are part and parcel of their movement. Right. Although I would say, I mean, from the Israelis perspective, they might say they already know how Omar and Tlaib are going to vote on appropriations bills and and things having to do with providing security assistance to Israel, for example. To me, it's a bigger thing just that they would not have done this or Israel would not have done this uh, with any other two representatives. I mean, I brought up the hypothetical of of Richard Spencer in Congress, but you could say they they wouldn't have done this with Steve King from Iowa. And just that that these are two 
pretty easy targets. And a, a concern I have is that there's a lot to criticize Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar for, and they're public officials who can stand up to criticism, just like Israel and its government can stand up to criticism. But in casting this in black and white terms, it will be harder for the Democratic Party to have these kinds of internal conversations about Omar and Tlaib that they may need to have because it's either standing uh, with your colleagues in the party or, or again, standing with a foreign government. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, Evan. But I also think this points to what Netanyahu is also trying to do and what he's been trying to do for the past at least four years is just to create this idea that Democrats in general are anti-Israel. And that's why he constantly highlighting these two who are obviously in a, a very small minority is a great way of doing that. Any Israeli who looks at the statements of these people say, well, there's no place for them here. They don't support really our right to exist. It's a very easy and a very compelling argument for him to make. And he obviously started this with coming to Congress to uh, petition against the, the Iran deal in 2015. But I mean, this is a real opportunity for him to kind of, it will obviously have really disastrous effects for the future of the bipartisan support for Israel. But in the near term, it serves Netanyahu's interests uh, quite nicely. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen the increased politicization of the U.S.-Israel relationship, and that's a whole topic in and of itself. I mean, we have seen, we've seen Republicans seek to use Israel to undermine other measures that come up into the Congress. There was a war powers resolution seeking to withdraw U.S. support for, you know, the war in Yemen and an important humanitarian disaster that is going on there. And the uh, use these issues, you know, in that case it was anti-Semitism, but seek to use Israel and other measures, uh, a pension measure, uh, a number of other times in something called a motion to recommit. And we don't need to go into all of the uh, congressional uh, jargon and, and, and minutia of how these things work. But the idea is that, you know, there has been a weaponization of Israel in seeking to literally use Israel and, and try to cause divides within the Democratic Party in hopes of furthering a literal partisan game. We're not talking about furthering a gain on Israel policy. We're talking about furthering a gain on, on a humanitarian disaster, furthering a gain on pension benefits, furthering a gain on all kinds of other issues that are not related to Israel. My impression is that they've sort of been like laying these traps in otherwise unrelated legislation so that it draws out a kind of protracted fight over something that would have been either non-controversial or less controversial and, and certainly not related to Israel under any other context. Yeah, and I think also lay, I think you're exactly when you use the word laying a trap because I think it's building a narrative. And I think if we have this conversation in a year and a half from now, we will see in the 2020 elections, up and down the ticket, talking points distributed and, and employed by Republican candidates up and down the ticket and Republican operatives about the anti-Israel Democratic Party and all of the votes that the Democratic Party has taken against Israel. The way they're going to want to frame it is that we're no longer talking about the U.S.-Israel relationship, we're talking about the Trump-Netanyahu relationship, and that the only people who are fit to manage that relationship and to steward those ties are Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu, and it plays in to both of their narratives. It absolutely is about narratives, as you said, and, and it's, it's very effective with, with their own base and potentially with people at the fringes outside of their base. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, I think 
you know, we talk often about how criticizing the, you know, Netanyahu government is separate from supporting the state of Israel. And it's become a normative talking point that criticizing Israel is, is, and the Netanyahu government does not mean that you are anti-Israel. I think what you just pointed out is exactly the case that they are trying to push back against this. Because it's a normative talking point, they're trying to say Trump equals America and Netanyahu equals Israel. And if you're against either of those two people, you're against those countries. And if you're for those countries, you're for those people. And you're for the relationship. An interesting thing, by the way, that's just popped up is different members of Congress are now reacting to this news. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez now saying that she won't visit Israel or the West Bank until all members of Congress are allowed in. And she had previously said that she would not take any foreign trips within her first year, which is why many people were not expecting her to join the trip uh, with uh, Congresswoman Omar and Tlaib. But obviously, this tweet moves beyond the first her first year in Congress. Right. And I, and I imagine she was also in, she's also envisioning herself as not just being a one term uh, representative. But it's interesting when we talk about laying traps and how people are going to respond to this. Her decision not to take any foreign trips at all is something totally separate and totally beside this conversation and is about her own domestic priorities. But it'll be interesting how all Democrats respond from the left wing of the party into the center and and what is perceived to be, I don't like the term, but the the establishment wing of the party, because it's really hard because these are their, their party colleagues at the end of the day, and they're being given this impossible choice. And I hate to say it, but Netanyahu and Trump, certainly in coordination, I don't think that we can say that this just fell into place, have done a really good job of putting them in a bad spot. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's even more than coordination, right? You had Ambassador Dermer on behalf of the president, excuse me, Ambassador Dermer on behalf of the prime, minister, the prime minister saying that they would be allowed in. And as has been pointed out by a variety of people on Twitter, including uh, Yair Rosenberg, that the only thing that changed between that statement and today was Donald Trump's preference as reported and his involvement. So while that is in some way, you know, that's not confirmed, but certainly all things point to interference, literal interference in domestic affairs and domestic considerations, literally made by uh, Arya Derry by Donald Trump. Again, I don't have to remind any of our listeners that this is the same president that benefited from Russian interference in the election and has encouraged it going forward. So, so this is not someone who is uh, immune or unhappy with the idea of interference by foreign officials or with foreign officials. I'm going to disagree there, actually, because Israel in the past and Netanyahu specifically have been absolutely willing to defy, to a point, the American president, the American government. I mean, you don't need to go back so far to think about the Obama administration, Netanyahu speaking to Congress about the JCPOA, the P5 plus one Iran deal, which went totally in the face of what the administration wanted. So I think if Israel were really committed to letting Tlaib and Omar into the country and to sticking with the promise that Ambassador Dermer made to Speaker Pelosi and to Majority Leader Hoyer previously, then they could have done it. And I don't think Trump would have forced their hand on this. 
I think that this might have been a late decision, certainly made after Dermer made that commitment, that was done and engineered in a way that they could think would benefit both Netanyahu and Trump because Netanyahu, as Eli had mentioned earlier, draws some kind of benefit getting voters to peel away from some of the hard right parties that he needs those votes to grow Likud's presence. And Trump, of course, riles up the base as he does every time when he opens his mouth and mentions Tlaib and Omar. Yeah, I mean, I think you point out the common thread between those two decisions, which is the political interests of people with common cause at stake. I think it's about forcing hand, but I don't, that's not to say that if there was a government so incredibly committed to, you know, the rule of law and democratic norms and, you know, all of the other things that this is violating, that they couldn't have done it. It's not even about democratic norms. It's just the fact that they are defying the, they would be defying the will of the American president if that was actually, if that were actually how it fell. If it were actually that Trump said, Tlaib and Omar shouldn't enter Israel and the Israeli government and the interior ministry let them in anyways. And in that sense, I think that they could have defied the will of the American government if they wanted to. Just uh, Evan, just uh, I think a small correction about AOC and what she what she said. So she she said that she would not schedule any visits to Israel. She did not say like the West Bank. I mean, I don't know how she could. She would obviously have to coordinate visiting the West Bank with Israel. But the point being, it's clearly a statement directed at Israel and not Israelis and Israel. Israel's original point. So Eli, you raise a good point. The reason I had framed it like that is because Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez said visiting Israel and Palestine are are key experiences towards a path to peace. But as you point out, she said any visits to Israel, of course, getting into the West Bank, you would have to go through Area C, Israeli control, um, if you wanted to see the Palestinian side. So that's something that would definitely come up. But you raise a good point, and I think you're right. We're going to wrap this one up, but this is something that, as Eli, you laid out, we're going to continue to see reverberate in the Israeli election field. And Aaron, the points you brought up about how this is going to play out in 2020, how this is going to play out in Congress. You know, there's an issue that we didn't get to talk about in this episode, but is something people should pay attention to. There are stirrings of a conversation on conditioning aid to Israel. That's the security assistance that the United States provides to Israel, because the discussion, I, I should add, people aren't always clear what they're talking about because we don't provide economic aid to Israel anymore. Um, and that, that is necessary security aid, but that's there are the beginnings of a conversation about that. And if you have Israel flouting members of Congress like this, it's going to add fuel to that fire and it's only going to further the conversation. It's going to be something that uh, starts to pop up more and more. So I'd encourage everyone to follow those threads. Definitely check out Israel Policy Forum's statement on this issue on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org. And our policy director, Michael Koplow, has a great thread on this issue on Twitter. And continue following the Israeli elections because, as we've discussed, this is going to come up. It has already come up, as we saw Yair Lapid responding, and other figures are going to be reacting to this. And so continue checking out that 120 project at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash elections two, number two. And we will catch you on Israel Policy Pod next week. Hopefully not in a state of crisis like this.